Apple Presents Events at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, entertainment reporter Shannon Cook, and tonight's guest, Amanda Hawking. We're actually going to kick things off by having Amanda read uh, a portion from her new novel, Wake. So take it away, Amanda. Okay, I'm going to start with the prologue. It's entitled, Ours. Even over the sea, Thea could smell the blood on her. When she breathed in, it filled her with a familiar hunger that haunted her dreams, except now it disgusted her, leaving a horrible taste in her mouth because she knew where it came from. Is it done? she asked. She stood on the rocky shore, staring over the sea, her back to her sister. You know it is, Penn said. Although Penn was angry, her voice still kept its seductive edge, that alluring texture she could never completely erase. No thanks to you. Thea glanced back over her shoulder at Penn. Even in the dull light of the moon, Penn's black hair glistened, and her tan skin seemed to glow. Fresh from eating, she looked even more beautiful than she had a few hours before. A few droplets of blood splattered Thea's clothes, but Penn had mostly been spared from it, except for her right hand. It was stained crimson up to her elbow. Thea's stomach rolled with both hunger and disgust, and she turned away again. Thea, Penn sighed and walked over to her. You know it had to be done. Thea didn't say anything for a moment. She just listened to the way the ocean sang to her, the water song calling for her. I know, Thea said finally, hoping her words didn't betray her true feelings. But the timing is awful. We should have waited. It couldn't wait anymore, Penn insisted, and Thea wasn't sure if that was true or not. But Penn had made a decision, and Penn always got what she wanted. We don't have much time. Thea gestured to the moon, nearly full above them, then looked back over at Penn. I know, but I already told you, I've had my eye on someone. Penn smiled wildly at her, showing her razor-sharp teeth, and it won't be long before she's ours. Thank you for that. Very nice. Thank you. Uh, it's always nice to hear the author read her own material. Um, Amanda, you've written about paranormal themes, vampires, zombies. Uh, and in Wake, you focus on sirens, those Greek mythical femme fatale types. What is it about sirens that compelled you to conjure them in this book? Um, I, I was always really into Greek mythology, even when I was growing up. I was really interested in it, and I read lots of different things about it. Um, but I think what really sparked my interest in sirens was an episode of DuckTales I saw when I was like seven or eight. They had sirens on there. And uh, they were kind of really cool and kind of dangerous and a little scary. So I've always kind of liked them since then. Uh, I'm about halfway through reading Wake myself, and one of the characters, one of the sirens, uh, Penn, She's so sort of delicious and dangerous, and she, I keep thinking about Megan Fox, the actress. Is there any chance you had her in mind when you were writing her? Because the description of her sounds like her. Um, I, I think that I pictured a Megan Fox-esque type person, and I think that if they ever did a film version, I think she'd be great at it, but um, I don't know, yeah. I think she should um, definitely be in this film if it becomes a, th if it becomes a film. Uh, now, Amanda, you've developed a bit of a reputation as someone who has helped to change the way we view self-publishing. In barely two years, you sold more than a million copies of the books that you self-published, mostly using the ebook platform. Is it true that one of the big motivators for that was the Muppets? Yes, that's true. Um, 
in early 2010, I'd heard about a Muppets exhibit. It was like a traveling Jim Henson show thing. And the closest city they were coming to is Chicago. And I live in Minnesota. So I thought if I could save up a couple hundred dollars, I could go to Chicago for the weekend and I could see the Muppets. And I really wasn't making much money at my day job. So I thought if I try self-publishing, I might be able to make a little extra money and I'd be able to go. So that was kind of an impetus for me. And you did get to see the Muppets in Chicago. I did, yes. And it was, it was very fantastic. Um, was another motivator rejection? Because pretty much since the age of 17, you'd been throwing yourself at literary agents in the publishing world and you'd been knocked back every time. Um, it wasn't like so much I was like rejection as I just knew that I needed to do this. And if other avenues weren't open, I had to try something different. I just knew that I couldn't keep trying the same thing and expect a different result. So this was something different and so I felt like I should try it. I always wonder, do authors keep their rejection letters? Um, I did keep some of them, especially in the beginning. But then after a while, I was like, I don't need to keep these. And especially a lot of them were emails and form letters and stuff, so then I didn't keep them. But uh, some of the ones that were more personal, and I could tell that they'd actually read it and they had tips and stuff, I, I kept some of those too. Well, rejection letters don't really matter anymore. <laughs> in your case, you're a massive success. And in March of 2011, you inked your first traditional publishing deal. Congratulations. A $2 million contract with St. Martin's Press. Was that like a dream come true? Or by then, were you kind of like, eh, I'm kind of kicking butt anyway? Um, I don't know. It was kind of, it, it was like a dream come true, but it was also very... I don't know, I'd already felt like a lot of my dreams had come true. The main goal in my life was to be able to support myself as a writer and to have books that people enjoyed reading. And that had already kind of happened. So this was just more like um, really exciting frosting on a, on a cake. How difficult is self-publishing really? The actual act of like uploading a book is relatively simple. Everything kind of makes it simple. But if you want to be successful with publishing, it's very time consuming and um, some of the aspects of it can be very difficult and other aspects are just tedious. And to be able to do all the stuff that I did as a self-publisher, my publishing company now has like eight or nine people who do that. So I mean that gives you an example of like how much work it really is. Um, and when you do self-publish, who edits the stuff? Mom? Dad? Your roommate? The cat? Um, I, I, the cat sometimes tried to help, but she wasn't very good. She just chewed on the paper. Um, but I hired freelance editors. I also had um, friends and um, re read over it first. And I would also have beta readers. Eventually, when I started getting more involved in self-publishing, I knew readers who liked my books. I would kind of have them read over first and, and see what they thought. Um, but it was basically, now I have an editor with the publishing house. But um, when I was on my own, it was hiring a lot of people. You seem to churn out these books so fast. How long does it take you to write one? Uh, it, when I'm actually like sitting down and writing, it's usually about two to four weeks, but I'm writing like marathon sessions, like eight to 12 hours a night, and I'm doing it like every night. So I think you know most sane people do like two hours a night over a course of several months. So um, yeah. 12 hour stints overnight, do you ever sleep? I do, I sleep um, during the day, but I've always kind of been, I'm a big night owl, so. I still get my sleep. Well, now that you have this traditional publishing deal, so you do have some help, um, has it taken as much of the burden of publicity and other things off as much as you'd hoped? 
Yeah, I think they definitely did. Um, I mean, I still have to do things, and I still want to do things, like interact with readers and go out on, on like a tour and stuff, but they kind of help organize things and streamline things, so it's not like me like doing scattershot attempts and hoping that something sticks. They're like, well, here's things that'll work, so you should do those. Um, so that kind of helps it. And then the rest of the stuff, they're taking care of a large portion of everything else. So even though I have publicity stuff that I need to do, since everything else is kind of taken care of, it's not as much of a burden. I want to show off some really impressive statistics. Uh, I have a friend called Porter Anderson. He's a journalist, and he writes a publishing column called Writing on the Ether. And he brought some staggering figures to my attention. In 1998, there were roughly 900,000 active book titles listed in books in print. And today, just 14 years later, there are 32 million. Wow. 32 million. And, and that's not including self-published digital books like, like the ones you, you were putting out. Wow. You managed to stand out. How on earth <laughs> is it possible to stand out with that size competition? I don't completely know. I think that, you know, I've thought about it a lot myself and try to come up with like some magic answer where I'll say, haha, it's because of this one thing. But I think it was really a combination of things. It was that I was writing in a popular genre. I had a number of books that I could publish on hand, so I put out a lot of books in a short amount of time. I priced them very low, and I was very um, present on the internet, so I was actively talking to readers and book bloggers and that kind of thing. So I think it was just, and then some magical other element where stars align and, and angels sing and that kind of thing just kind of played into it too, so. Um, you're, you've realized your writing dreams and you're only in your mid to late 20s. Is there a feeling of, Oh my gosh, what do I do now? Uh, sometimes there is. I mean, there's sometimes there's like a, I have a fear that like, you know, what if this was kind of my peak and then everything else isn't going to be as much fun. But um, I plan on writing forever. And as long as that I am writing and able to reach people, then I'm kind of happy with it and I'm kind of content. And so for me, when I look forward, it's just me trying to think about what other projects I want to work on and what else interests me and where I want to go with my writing. Um. And what do you think of this fame stuff? Because you're, you're quite a phenom. You're, you're known in the publishing world, and you have a huge, huge following of readers. I, you know, I, I doesn't really like affect my day-to-day -day life. I live the same way I did before, except now, instead of leaving for work, I work from home. Otherwise, you know, my life is pretty much the same. And it's kind of weird, because it's like I'm like fame is like this abstract thing that doesn't really affect anything or have anything to do with me or who I am or how I write or anything and so it's just this weird idea that some people might know who I am but then they don't even really know who I am they know like little bits of things so it's just it's kind of strange it's just an interesting thing that happens and it exists and I don't know I don't think about it that much well when the checks did start rolling in what was one of your first big purchases um, the first thing I bought that was big was I bought a new car because my car wasn't working. Um, <laughs> I had had like a dead car in my driveway for like three months, so it was pretty exciting to be able to have one that ran. And then I think the first big splurge I bought was I bought um, a Han Solo and Carbonite, like a replica of it. And so um, that was my first big fun thing. If you're writing 12 hours a night, you probably don't have a whole lot of time to do a lot of other stuff. But I hear you're in a rock band. Uh, well, we, we started a band, I think, 
I don't know, probably like seven years ago. And we practiced for like seven years ago for like a while. And then um, we just kind of started doing other things. But we didn't break up. So I'm technically still in it. But I, I think it's very loosely technically in it. And you have to share with us the name of this band. It's hilarious. Uh, we are the Frag and Aardvarks. So, yep. Well, and you play guitar. Yes, I play guitar badly. Like, the only thing I know how to play really well is um, some Green Day songs, and Every Rose Has Its Thorn, which is really, really easy to play. So, I'm bad. Now, your new novel, Wake, is part of the Water Song series, and there are three more books coming out. Can you tell us what their titles are, and how far along are you with the, the writing? Uh, I have written the first three books in the series, and I've started the fourth one, but I'm going to finish it up when I'm done with this tour. Um, the second book is called Lullaby, and that will be out November 27th, 2012. So that's like three months away. And then um, the next book, the third book, is called Tidal, as in Tidal Wave, like T-I-D-A-L. And that'll be out sometime early 2013. And the fourth book is called Elegy, and I think that will also be out in 2013. So Great. Well, we look forward to all of those. Now, why don't we kick it out to the audience here? Does anyone have any questions? Just raise your hand and I'll bring a mic over. I see one in the front row. Um, where do you come up with the names for the titles of your book? And did you pick the names for the Water Song series? I did. It was actually... Um, I was working, I had the idea of the story and I knew it was going to happen in the story and I just needed to come up with names. And so I think I stayed up all night with my roommate Eric and we were spitballing names. We came up with Water Song pretty quickly and then we knew that I wanted to go, like, uh, the titles vary, so one is water related and the other is music related. So that was kind of the idea. Um, but we were just kind of throwing out water and music words until we picked the titles. So. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? Yes. Music um, seems to feature prominently in your writing. Do you listen to music as you write? Yes, I do. I always listen to music. I have, um, I have like 40 different playlists on my iPod, and I make ones for each of uh, you know, my books, and then that's what I listen to when I write. You should release soundtracks with your books, of the music you were listening to. I put some of them up online when I release books. I kind of pick the best songs that I listen to that I think fit with the books. Because sometimes I really like a song, but it has nothing to do with the book. So then I don't want to put it on that. Okay, does anyone else have a question? Right here in the front row again. Hello. Um, all your characters are so well-developed. Like, I feel like every book you write, any character can have its own storyline like that's really predominant. When you are writing your characters, do you sit down and make really big descriptions for them so you know where they're going, or do you just kind of develop their story as they go along? Um, it's a little bit of both. Like, I start, down with, start out with, like, a kind of the basic outline of them but then as I'm writing they, they grow and because you know as you're writing you realize you need to fill in more spaces and more stuff comes out about them so um, it's a little of both I have the basic idea of who they are but then I just kind of fill in the details as I go along right here in the second room you said you were a fan of Greek mythology I was wondering if you ever read Homer's The Odyssey I have I've um, I also read uh, The Cliff Notes, which I like a bit better, but I, I have read it. I read that when I was younger. But So I was yeah. wondering if maybe the influences of the siren chapters and how they also play in with other mythological, uh, mythological creatures, if that's something you'd be interested in doing in a type of series where it's, more, it's not just focused on one type of either you know, sirens, vampires, trolls, etc. 
I know that uh, the I made a rule in the beginning that I was only going to kind of write about like one creature. Like if a book was going to be about werewolves, it would just be about werewolves. But I think that especially with Greek mythology, it all kind of ties together, and it's such fertile ground. They've got so many really interesting uh, creatures and stories that I might eventually kind of do. I guess not really like a spin-off, but some kind of thing where they tie in. Uh, another one right here in the front row. You know, I've read numerous accounts of your story. When you first wrote, you were still working, and you are doing it part-time. Can we hear it in your words? Can you tell us how that went? You know, you were working, you came home, and you cranked out this book. Uh, when I started writing, um, well, not when I started writing, when I was really kind of focused on writing, and I was like, it needs to happen now, I was working full-time at a group home, so I worked like... I think it was like 3 to 9 or 2 to 10 p.m. Was when, I, when I would get done with work. And then when I came home, at the time, we didn't have cable or internet because we couldn't afford it. So that was like an amazing thing to happen. It was actually like a miracle because then I could never get distracted. I had to sit down and write at night because there's nothing on at 10 o'clock at night. So then I was just kind of coming home and I would write all night long and then the, the sun would come up or I'd get too tired and um, I would go to bed and then I would sleep for probably four or five hours and then I'd get up and go to work and do it again. So at what point did you start writing full-time? Uh, it was two years ago this month. So um, that would be about after about six months after I started publishing. And so. do you miss some of those jobs? I do miss, because I, I worked in a group home for years, and I loved working with the people, um, the people in homes and stuff. I really enjoyed it. But I, I also, you know, don't miss not having to get up and go to work. So um. Anyone else have a, yep. Hands are going two up. More. We'll start in the second row, and then we'll come back to the front. Some excellent um, makeup in the front row here. Yeah, that is very pretty amazing. Impressive. Um, I devour your books. When <laughs> I start a series, I have to read it all in one go. And I just finished The Hollows. Mm -hmm. Can we have more Laszlo, please? <laughs> I want to know what happened in Canada and what's going to happen and more zombies. Um, I have ideas for where the series is going to go. Right now, I'm really like kind of focusing on the graphic novels and getting them out. And I don't know when things with the book are coming out, or, or so I don't really want to say things until I know for sure. And I can tell you, like, it's coming out tomorrow. But I do know that Lazo's story isn't over. I can give you that much. So, yep. I'm just curious. My friend, she she's writing like a post-apocalyptic, and she uh, mm -hmm. she likes to write it in the bathtub. Do you have a specific place where you like to write your books? Do you ha have a specific room or in your bed? Um, I, I write in my office because I have an office and then I can shut the door um, and I think that really helps I usually it's just me and my dog in my office and then I unhook the internet and I put on music and then I just sit and write and then you know I have no distractions I have I, I, I can write anywhere though if I really want to it's just if there's things going on around me then I get distracted and then I don't write as much but so the office works the best for me So we do have time for two more. Oh, I see one right here in the second room. Hi. I just want to know, how many times have you started writing and just couldn't finish it? Couldn't figure out where you were going with it? Um, it used to happen to me all the time before I started outlining. Like everything, I would go, well, whatever, I don't know what's happening here. So, But now it does not happen that often since... I started outlining because what an outline really does is it tells me what point A is and then what point B is and then when I write I put them together but then I don't have that floundering moment where I'm going where was I going this what is he doing why is he there this is dumb you know so I think that outlining really helped me 
but yeah, it has happened a lot. So you don't suffer from writer's block? Is that what you're telling us? I, well, I think what I think writer's block, I think everybody suffers from writer's block in a way. It's just because when you sit down, it's like there's like a thing between you and the book every time you sit down for the first time. But then once you get out of that way, you can just keep going. So it's, I think outlining helps you never put the block in the way in the first time. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, I think if you take away distractions and put someone in front of a computer long enough, they'll write something. So. And you drink a lot of Red Bull, don't you? So that probably helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Okay, I see one right here on the end of the third row. Hi, I love your gem in the hologram shirt. <laughs> um, Thank you. But my question is, um, how do you manage your pacing? Like, did, did you know that it was going to be a series of about four books um, from the very beginning? Or do you just start with an idea of, like, this could be a book, and then this is developing into a, into a series? When I, when I come up with an idea, I don't... It kind of uh, it depends on the story because some things I do know there's not enough in this to prolong a series. It's just going to be like one book or something. So I have an idea that it's, if it's going to be a series, and I think at least for me personally, the way that I want to write a series, I want there to be like a beginning, middle, and an end. And I think that, again, for me personally, I don't think I can extend the tension well enough beyond like three or four books. So that's kind of like the natural end for me. I know that um, other people can do it, like J.K. Rowling did it fabulously, and I know a lot of other people do series, like even when you're looking at like, Sweet Valley High and they can have like kind of a Monster of the Week episode and those can go on forever. But um, I don't know. That's how I think of it. It's going to be either like three or four books or it's probably going to be one. So. I've actually just received word. We have time for actually a few more questions, and we're going to take one right in the middle, and then I see one up in the front as well. Hi again. I was just wondering, what are some of your favorite series to read or that you grew up with in like genres that you prefer? Um, I'll read anything, like literally anything. Right now I'm really into nonfiction for some reason. I've been reading a lot of like biographies and a lot of stuff about like, um, I read a lot of books about like the Holocaust last year for, I don't know, I was just wanted to. Um, but um, I'll read anything. When I was younger, I was really into Judy Bloom and Stephen King and Anne Rice. Um, and then, I don't know, but I would read anything. Right now, um, I was just talking with my friends, and I'm going to start rereading the old Fear Street books because I want to, and those are awesome. So I think I'm going to read those next. But yeah. I saw one oh, over here. What inspires you to write the story? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I take inspiration from everything, I think, in my life or anything I see. Anything that really interests me can end up in the story, and it can interest me good or bad. If it keeps my attention, then I might write about it in the future. So it's just kind of a combination of stuff that I like. Do you take notes when you're out and about? I usually don't. If something's, like, um, exciting to me, I kind of store it. Like, I'm like a squirrel with nuts, and there's, like, a place in my brain where I have, like, future story ideas, and they all just sit there until I can use them. We're going to take one more question right here in the front row. Hi again. Hi. Um, <laughs> I know this has been talked a lot with your blog and your fans, but um, it feels kind of up in the air. How do you feel currently about the My Blood Approves fifth book? Do you think it's going to happen, or you really feel like everything's over? Because not so much the love trial. I really want to see where Alice goes with her new training. Um, it's... I don't know. I've been not really. Tr I've been trying to not think about it for a while because I think if I put distance in between me and it, then I'll feel fresh later, and then I can go. This is how. Oh my gosh! Actually, 
do kind of like this, you know. Um, I think I plan on finishing it. I just, I don't know when and I don't want to be like, well, this, because I was kind of keep giving like dates and then I would get close to it and I'd be like, it still doesn't feel right to me. So now I just don't feel comfortable setting a date because then I feel like I'll just let people down if that date doesn't come. So um, I don't know. I, I plan on it, but I'm just kind of not thinking about it until like I think about it again until it like, comes to me again. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Sorry. Great questions, everybody. Really impressive. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And um, hope you'll enjoy Amanda's new series. I'm enjoying it very much. And thank you, Amanda, for coming along tonight. It's been great chatting with you. Yes, thank you. Enjoy Chapter 1, From Wake, by Amanda Hawking. Read for you by Nicola Barber. The complete audiobook is available for download at the iBookstore. Macmillan Audio presents Wake by Amanda Hawking. Read for you by Nicola Barber. Chapter 1 Midnight Swim The engine made a bizarre chugging sound like a dying robot llama, followed by an innocuous click-click. Then silence. Gemma turned the key harder, hoping that would somehow breathe life into the old Chevy. But it wouldn't even chug anymore. The llama had died. You have got to be kidding me, Gemma said, and cursed under her breath. She'd worked her butt off to pay for this car. Between the long hours she spent training at the pool and keeping up on her schoolwork, she had little time for a steady job. That had left her stuck babysitting the horrible Tenemeyer boys. They put gum in her hair and poured bleach on her favorite sweater. But she toughed it out. Gemma had been determined to get a car when she turned 16, even if that meant dealing with the Tenemeyers. Her older sister Harper had gotten their father's old car as a hand-me-down. Harper had offered to let Gemma drive it, but she declined. Mainly, Gemma needed her own car because neither Harper nor her father readily approved of her late-night swims at Anthemusa Bay. They didn't live far from the bay, but the distance wasn't what bothered her family. It was the late-night part, and that was the thing that Gemma craved most. Out there, under the stars, the water seemed like it went on forever. The bay met the sea, which in turn met the sky, and it all blended together, like she was floating in an eternal loop. There was something magical about the bay at night, something that her family couldn't seem to understand. Gemma tried the key one more time, but it only elicited the same empty clicking sound from her car. Sighing, she leaned forward and stared out at the moonlit sky through the cracked windshield. It was getting late, and even if she left on foot right now, she wouldn't get back from her swim until almost midnight. 
that wouldn't be a huge problem, but her curfew was 11. Starting off the summer being grounded on top of having a dead car was the last thing she wanted. Her swim would have to wait for another night. She got out of the car. When she tried to slam the door shut in frustration, it only groaned and a chunk of rust fell off at the bottom. This is by far the worst $300 I ever spent, Gemma muttered. Car trouble? Alex asked from behind her, startling her so much she nearly screamed. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. No, it's okay. She waved it off and turned around to face him. I didn't hear you come out. Alex had lived next door to them for the past 10 years, and there was nothing scary about him. As he got older, he tried to smooth out his unruly dark hair, but a lock near the front always stood up, a cowlick he could never tame. It made him look younger than 18, and when he smiled, he looked younger still. There was something innocent about him, and that was probably why Harper had never thought of him as anything more than a friend. Even Gemma had dismissed him as uncrushworthy, until recently. She'd seen the subtle changes in him, his youthfulness giving way to broad shoulders and strong arms. It was that new thing, the new manliness he was beginning to grow into, that made her stomach flutter when Alex smiled at her. She still wasn't used to feeling that way around him, so she pushed it down and tried to ignore it. The stupid piece of junk won't run. Gemma gestured to the rusty compact and stepped over to where Alex stood on his lawn. I've only had it for three months, and it's dead already. I'm sorry to hear that, Alex said. Do you need help? You know something about cars? Gemma raised an eyebrow. She had seen him spend plenty of time playing video games or with his nose stuck in a book, but she'd never once seen him under the hood of a car. Alex smiled sheepishly and lowered his eyes. He had been blessed with tan skin, which made it easier for him to hide his embarrassment. But Gemma knew him well enough to understand that he blushed at almost anything. No, he admitted with a small laugh and motioned back to the driveway where his blue Mercury Cougar sat. But I do have a car of my own. He pulled his keys out of his pocket and swung them around his finger. For a moment, he managed to look slick before the keys flew off his hand and hit him in the chin. Gemma stifled a laugh as he scrambled to pick them up. You okay? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. He rubbed his chin and shrugged it off. So, do you want a ride? Are you sure? It's pretty late. I don't want to bother you. Nah, it's no bother. He stepped back toward his car, waiting for Gemma to follow. Where are you headed? Just to the bay. I should have known. He grinned. Your nightly swim? It's not nightly, Gemma said, though he wasn't too far off base. Come on. Alex walked over to the cougar and opened his door. Hop in. All right, if you insist. Gemma didn't like imposing on people, but she didn't want to pass up a chance at swimming. A car ride alone with Alex wouldn't hurt either. Usually she only got to spend time with him when he was hanging out with her sister. So what is it about these swims that you find so entrancing? Alex asked after she'd gotten in the car. I don't think I'd ever describe them as entrancing. She buckled up her seatbelt, then leaned back. I don't know what it is exactly. There's just 
nothing else like it. What do you mean? Alex asked. He'd started the car, but stayed parked in the driveway, watching her as she tried to explain. During the day, there are so many people at the bay, especially during the summer. But at night, it's just you and the water and the stars. And it's dark, so it feels like one thing, and you're part of it all. She furrowed her brow, but her smile was wistful. I guess it is kind of entrancing, she admitted. She shook her head, clearing it of the thought. I don't know, maybe I'm just a freak who likes swimming at night. That was when Gemma realized Alex was staring at her, and she glanced over at him. He had a strange expression on his face, almost like he was dumbfounded. What? Gemma asked, beginning to feel embarrassed at the way he looked at her. She fidgeted with her hair, tucking it behind her ears, and shifted in her seat. Nothing. Sorry. Alex shook his head and put the car in drive. You probably want to get out to the water. I'm not in a huge rush or anything, Gemma said. But that was sort of a lie. She wanted to get as much time in the water as she could before her curfew. Are you still training? Alex asked. Or did you stop for summer vacation? Nope, I still train. She rolled down the car window, letting the salty air blow in. I swim every day at the pool with the coach. He says my times are getting really good. At the pool, you swim all day. And then you want to sneak out and swim all night? Alex smirked. How does that work? It's different. She stuck her arm out the open window, holding it straight like the wing of a plane. Swimming at the pool, it's all laps and time. It's work. Out in the bay, it's just floating and splashing around. But don't you ever get sick of being wet? Alex asked. Nope. She shook her head. That's like asking you, don't you ever get sick of breathing air? As a matter of fact, I do. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it be grand if I didn't need to breathe? Why? Gemma laughed. Why would that ever be grand? I don't know. He looked self-conscious for a minute, his smile twisting nervously. I guess I mostly thought it when I was in gym class and they'd make me run or something. I was always so out of breath. Alex glanced over at her, as if checking to see if she thought he was a complete loser for that admission. But she only smiled at him in response. You should have spent more time swimming with me, Gemma said. Then you wouldn't have been so out of shape. I know, but I'm a geek, he sighed. At least I'm done with all that gym stuff now that I graduated. Soon you'll be so busy at college, you won't even remember the horrors of high school, Gemma said, her tone turning curiously despondent. Yeah, I guess. Alex furrowed his brow. Gemma leaned closer to the window, hanging her arm down the side and resting her chin on her hand as she stared out at houses and trees passing by. In her and Alex's neighborhood, the houses were all cheap and run down, but as soon as they passed Capri Lane, everything was clean and modern. Since it was tourist season, all the buildings and trees were lit up brightly. Music from the bars and the sounds of people talking and laughing wafted in through the air. Are you excited to get away from all this? Gemma asked with a wry smile and pointed to a drunken couple arguing on the boulevard. There is some stuff I'll be glad to get away from, he admitted. 
But when he looked over at her, his expression softened. But there will definitely be some things that I miss. The beach was mostly deserted, other than a few teenagers having a bonfire, and Gemma directed Alex to drive a little farther. The soft sand gave way to more jagged rocks lining the shore, and the paved parking lots were replaced by a forest of bald cypress trees. He parked on a dirt road as close to the water as he could get. In the past, he'd gone with Harper to swim meets at the school, and there had rarely been one that Gemma didn't win. I won, Gemma declared when she reached the rock. As if there was any doubt. Alex swam up next to her and hung onto the rock to support himself. His breath was still short, and he wiped the salty water from his eyes. That was hardly a fair fight. Sorry, she smiled. Gemma wasn't anywhere near as winded as Alex was, but she leaned onto the rock next to him. For some reason, I don't think you really mean that, Alex said in mock offense. His hand slipped off the rock, and when he reached out to steady himself again, he accidentally put his hand over Gemma's. His first instinct was to pull it back in some kind of hasty embarrassment, but the second before he did, he changed his mind. Alex let his hand linger over hers, both of them cool and wet. Her smile had changed, turning into something fonder, and for a moment, neither of them said anything. They hung onto the rock like that for a moment longer, the only sound, the water lapping around them. Gemma would have been content to sit with Alex like that, but light exploded in the cove behind him, distracting her. The small cove was at the mouth of the bay, just before it met the ocean, about a quarter mile from where Gemma and Alex floated. Alex followed her gaze. A moment later, laughter sounded over the water and he pulled his hand away from hers. A fire flared inside the cove, the light flickering across the three dancing figures that fanned it. From this far away, it was difficult to get a clear view of what they were doing but it was obvious who they were by the way they moved. Everyone in town knew of them, even if nobody really seemed to know them personally. It's those girls, Alex said, softly, as if the girls would overhear him from the cove. The three girls were dancing with elegance and grace. Even their shadows, looming on the rock walls around them, seemed sensual in their movements. What are they doing out here? Alex asked. I don't know. She shrugged, continuing to stare at them, unabashed. They've been coming out here more and more. They seem to like hanging out in that cove. Huh, Alex said. She looked back at him and saw his brow furrowed in thought. I don't even know what they're doing in town. Me neither. He looked over his shoulder to watch them again. Somebody told me they were Canadian movie stars. Maybe, but they don't have accents. You've heard them talk? Alex asked, sounding impressed. Yeah, I've seen them at Pearl's Diner across from the library. They always order milkshakes. Didn't there used to be four of them? Yeah, I think so. Gemma squinted, trying to be sure she was counting right. Last time I saw them out here, there were four. But now there's only three. I wonder where the other one went. 
Gemma and Alex were too far away to understand them clearly, but they were talking and laughing, their voices floating over the bay. One of the girls began singing, her voice clear as crystal and so sweet it almost hurt to hear. The melody pulled at Gemma's heart. Alex's jaw dropped and he gaped at them. He moved away from the rock, floating slowly toward them, but Gemma barely even noticed. Her focus was on the girls, or more accurately, on the one girl who wasn't singing. Pen. Gemma was sure of it, just by the way Pen moved away from the two girls. Her long black hair hung down behind her, and the wind blew it back. She walked with startling grace and purpose, her eyes straight ahead. From this distance, in the dark, Pen shouldn't have noticed her, but Gemma could feel her eyes boring straight through her, sending chills down her spine. Alex, Gemma said in a voice that barely sounded like her own. I think we should go. What? Alex replied dazedly. And that was when Gemma realized how far he'd swum away from her. Alex, come on. I think we're bothering them. We should go. Go? He turned back to her sounding confused by the idea. Alex, Gemma said, nearly shouting now, but at least that seemed to get through to him. We need to get back, it's late. Oh, right. He shook his head, clearing it, and then swam back toward the shore. When Gemma was convinced he was back to normal, she followed him. Penn, Thea, Lexi, and Arista had been in town since the weather started warming up and people assumed they were the first tourists of the season. But nobody really knew exactly who they were or what they were doing here. All Gemma knew was that she hated it when they came out here. It disrupted her night swims. She didn't feel comfortable being in the water, not when they were out in the cove, dancing and singing and doing whatever it was they did. hope you've enjoyed this chapter from Wake by Amanda Hawking. The complete audiobook is available as a digital download from the iBookstore.